Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Holding Federal Public Health Agencies Accountable, Lessons from covid Please welcome Dr. Robert Moffitt, Senior Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Center for Health and Welfare Policy. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our program, Holding Federal Public Health Agencies Accountable. Since the onset of COVID-19 uh, three years ago, the United States has recorded more than 1.1 million deaths associated with the coronavirus. This past year, the House Select Subcommittee on Coronavirus Pandemic, chaired by Congressman Brad Wenstrup of Ohio, conducted several penetrating investigations into the performance of federal officials. The subcommittee has really performed an outstanding service for the public. These investigations revealed that federal officials failed to provide compelling information on the origin of the pandemic. They confused the public with mixed messages uh, periodically, and they provided weak scientific justifications uh, for both mask mandates and also vaccine mandates. They also provided poor guidance for school closures. Well, Congress uh, needs to reassess these agencies and clarify their roles and missions and retarget uh, federal funding so that they can more effectively respond to a future national medical emergency. Today, we have three prominent analysts who are gonna discuss these and related issues. Uh, Robert Charo is a former general counsel of the United States Department of Health and Human Services during the Trump administration. He also served in the Reagan administration as deputy general counsel of HHS. Uh, he was a prominent attorney at the law firms of Greenberg Trowrig and also Crowan Mooring. Uh, Dr. Brian Miller is a physician and assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Um, John, <clears throat> Brian is also a member of the Medicare Payment Advisory uh, Commission and a uh, fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. By the way, Dr. Miller also served uh, briefly as a medical officer at the Food and Drug Administration. Joel Zinberg is a lawyer and a surgeon. He is the Director of Public Health and Wellbeing Initiative at Paragon Health Institute and a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Dr. Uh, Zinberg uh, served uh, on the President's Council of Economic Advisors and he's practiced surgery at Mount Sinai Medical, Hos Medical System in New York for almost 30 years. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome uh, our, uh, our guests. The fact is that we have been through a very terrible experience with the loss of life, a crushing uh, of our economy, uh, the loss of hundreds of thousands of businesses, uh, terrible educational uh, losses, especially for minority children. Um, however, I think it's also important to keep some balance on this, and so I'm going to ask all of you a rather simple and direct question. Given the fact that there's been a lot of criticism of the response of the federal government and public health generally. What did the federal government do right in responding to this uh, terrible national medical emergency? Dr. Zinberg, I'd like to start with you. What do you think that they did right? Well, when I was at CEA, at the behest of uh, some people on National Security Council, we did a study entitled uh, vaccine innovation for pandemic influenza. And we issued that study uh, September 2019. Uh, and our basic conclusion was there was areas of market failure. Uh, and we proposed that you needed public-private partnerships 
so that you would have vaccine innovation that would create rapid uh, approval, uh, development and approval of new vaccines in the event of a pandemic. Uh, I'd love to say we were very prescient that we knew something was coming. We did know something was coming. We just didn't know it was coming quite that soon. And the thing that I think really went right was that the warp speed was an application of that idea that using public-private partnerships could develop something quickly, developed a new vaccine in 10 months, unheard of. It usually takes 10 years and billions of dollars. So that, I think, was an important achievement, and it's an important roadmap for the future. Thank you. Brian? So I would echo that Operation Warp Speed, the public-private partnership, and a focus on getting things done, right? Because there was a there was a realization that it was a true emergency. It wasn't, you know, a policy emergency. It was an actual public health emergency. And so <clears throat> people said, what are the things that we need to do? Vaccines being one of them got that over the finish line. I think specifically looking at the FDA, it exercised muscles that it hasn't exercised in years, if not decades, uh, looking and using uh, the EUA authority to get products on the market relatively quickly so we could get them to patients. Right. Bob, how, how, do you, how do you feel about this? I agree with what uh, Dr. Zinberg said about Operation Warp Speed. It was not only a public-private partnership, but it was a partnership between Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense, because we relied heavily on the uh, Department of the Army for distribution, uh, logistics. One morning, uh, one of the manufacturers uh, called me and said, we need 100, man 100 electricians at such and such a location to complete this factory. Uh, is there any chance you can get us 100? I walked down the hall to General Gus Perna, said General Perna, they need 100 electricians tomorrow morning. Is that feasible? And he said, no problem. <laughs> Next morning, 100 electricians showed up. So uh, that was the advantage of the, uh, the using the US Army as a partner, not only with the private sector, but also with the Department of Health and Human Services. All right, thank you very much. Um, anyway, let's get into some of the difficulties uh, that the federal uh, government has faced. Um, Dr. Zinberg, at, at the inception of the pandemic, uh, the Centers for D Disease Control and Prevention was criticized for a variety of reasons. Uh, a failure to maintain, for example, the strategic national uh, stockpile of medical equipment and supplies. Uh, there were shortages. Um, there was a, a failure on the part of CDC to modernize its data collection and uh, dissemination of data in real time. And the, another problem, uh, which became very obvious pretty quickly, was that the CDC's communication with state and, and local public health authorities was really quite inadequate. Even um, CDC director, the former CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, uh, publicly stated that the CDC failed uh, to live up to its expectations. My question to you, uh, Joel, is why did the CDC perform so badly? And looking at what happened compared to what should have happened, what do you think should be done to make the CDC function more effectively? Well, yeah, I think you're right. The CDC, pretty much from start to finish, had a, a litany of failures, you know, from early inability to share data with state and local authorities so that they didn't know who they were supposed to look at uh, when people coming in from overseas, from their issuing a, a, a flawed test in the, that, in the month of February 2020 that meant that for the entire month we had no real testing in this country, to communications issues, to failures on the scientific front, to issuing uh, uh, advice that was clearly politically influenced. So we looked into this uh, in a paper called Unauthorized and Unprepared at Paragon and CEI to see why did this happen? We looked and we looked at the history, the organization, and the pandemic performance of CDC to try to get some uh, notion of what was going on. And our conclusion was basically the problem was mission creep. Uh, and this was abetted by a lack of congressional authorization. So that what it left was a an agency that's huge, diffuse, that's 
not focused on its core mission, which is to combat infectious disease. Uh, it's focused on everything but that, and it made, meant that the organization was unprepared for the pandemic. And when the pandemic arrived, it was ineffective in combating it. So you need a little history here. The CDC was founded in 1946 in the executive branch, not by a congressional action. And it grew in the executive branch uh, by a variety of measures of things being sort of dumped into CDC through various appropriations. But the end result is this enormous agency, uh, most of it unauthorized, only three of the 12 centers were actually authorized by Congress. Mm. Uh, so, And they, they look at all kinds of issues that have nothing to do with infectious disease. They look at uh, racial justice, they look at violence and injury prevention. They look, they have a, one of their biggest centers deals with chronic disease. None of these things are focused on what they should be focused on. And they duplicate things that are done in other agencies, like NIH, for example, or the FDA's Tobacco Institute. So by one estimate, no more than 8% of the agency's resources go to infectious disease. So we thought that, that this lack of focus was really the problem. Yeah. Uh, so you know, you had a thing in April of 2021, <clears throat> the newly installed, you know, there's a boast in, in the CDC's uh, report on how they did during the pandemic that uh, in April 2021, newly installed director Dr. Walensky had declared uh, racism, a public health emergency, and was instituting measures for health equity throughout the agency. Well, I would remind people April 2021 was when the vaccine was being introduced. And less than 20% of the population had gotten a vaccine, and they were having trouble convincing people to take it. Was that really what they should have been focused on right. at the time? Uh, mission creep, yeah. Listen, on, related to this question of CDC and its relationship to other public health agencies, uh, one of the things that happened very early on was we had this serious problem with uh, the absence of effective diagnostic testing. Uh, Joel mentions this early on, uh, insufficient diagnostic testing. The Food and Drug Administration's regulatory regime contributed to that. At times, um, the FDA struggled to manage uh, the volume of uh, COVID diagnostic tests. Uh, Brian, why was this, and what Congress can what can Congress and the FDA really do to make sure that they do a much better job in dealing with this? Thank you, and I agree with my colleagues' assertions about the CDC wholeheartedly. Um, the FDA struggled uh, with diagnostics review, and if you think about it, like FDA product review, whatever the product space is, it's like an assembly line in a factory, right? It has you know, things get reviewed by engineers, they get reviewed by epidemiologists, biostatisticians, uh, physicians who are medical officers. I was a reviewer in the drug center, for example. The problem with that whole apparatus, and that apparatus is imperfect, but it works, is there's no like turbocharge or supercharge button. You can't just, you know, you can change uh, and allow like accelerated approval for drugs, for example. The FDA used its emergency youth authorization authority to get products onto the market earlier, including tests. But you only have so many people, right? Like, they, you can't just create reviewers. Right. And so the FDA has this sort of long forgotten program. It's called the 510K Third Party Review Program. It sets up accredited third party organizations to assist the FDA with its review volume. That program has sort of withered on the vine for the past 25 years. It was originally authorized in, I believe, 1997. So I think sort of building out that apparatus so you have that extra staff available, uh, shunting specific low-risk devices to that to allow the agency to focus on higher-risk products. So I think that Congress, the FDA, and industry can work together to tune up that program to create that volume. And you know, it's a real thing. Two uh, FDA device reviewers committed suicide during the yeah. pandemic, yeah. and they had a, a lot of their families had a lot of support from the agency. The reviewers had a lot of support. But when you're working 18 hours a day and you feel like your job requires you to keep on working, you know, to 20 hours a day or 22 hours a day, and you're alone at home, isolated in the middle of the pandemic, 
and you know that your review of that diagnostic device will allow patients to figure out if they have COVID and doctors to treat people appropriately, that's an enormous pressure that we need to relieve. Yes, thank you. Um, the pressure was terrible. At NIH, the National Institutes of Health, one of the things that started to surface fairly soon was the fact that the research grant process became an issue. Uh, officials at the National Institutes of Health, for example, uh, failed to monitor effectively the coronavirus uh, research grants in China, which has now become a major issue. Uh, the program's research program seems to fall, be falling short. It's, uh, some, some say it's become too hidebound. It's insufficiently innovative. Uh, it's not as competitive as it should be. Uh, Bob, you were general counsel during this crisis. Um, you've watched this very, very closely. Yeah. Uh, are there ways to coax the National Institutes of Health to be more innovative in its research, but at the same time, um, manage risks. There are, but I'd, I'd like to step back one moment, step sure. back yeah. and look at what actually happened during COVID. Um, and then we can look at it from a broader perspective. Um, when the pandemic broke in February, January, February of 2020, um, I decided for fun to rate how the three public health service agencies would perform during the pandemic. This was my prediction. And I put number one, CDC. Don't ever bet with me on anything. I, I will always lose. Uh, number two, FDA. And I rated number three, NIH. Uh, when I left a year later, I re-rated the performance of the agencies and NIH was number one. FDA a distant second, and CDC didn't even fit on the paper. Mm. Um, just the reverse of what I expected. And part of it was due to the fact that NIH made some extraordinarily prudent scientific investments many years ago that turned out to bear fruit when we needed it, and that was the mRNA technology. Um, obviously, it was not being funded privately. It needed federal funding, and, and it was the federal funding that created the platform that was ultimately used. So NIH uh, took a risk, and that risk paid off. Uh, generally, in most areas, however, the research is incremental, to a f and that's, uh, it creates problems because it is so incremental. A lot of researchers complain that they can only get funding if the experiment they're seeking funding for they've already done. Um, are there ways of changing it? There are. There are very simple ways because the system for it, it, the system that we use to make grants dates back 80 years. Mm. Okay, <clears throat> when it was much smaller, when there was one institute, the National Cancer Institute, that was it. Yeah. Um, and it's extraordinarily complicated. You have 180 study sections, advisory committees of between 12 and 24 people that are subject specific, and then you have 230 that are not subject specific, that are specialty, uh, that are brought in to bear. And any grant application is reviewed by a study section, scored by the study section, and then if it's good enough, it goes on to the council for each institute, which is a second advisory committee. And the secretary is precluded from funding anything unless it's been approved by both study sections. Um, that creates a regression to the mean, uh, where only very, very certain research will get funded. You, could, you can change that easily. Um, one thing I have proposed is you take all the fundable research, it's, but maybe, and before it gets scored, fundable hasn't been scored, or if it's been scored, no one's looked at the scores, and just randomly pull out 10% and fund those. <laughs> That's perfectly legal. And then you just track those 10% and see how many times they're cited, the research is cited over the next 10 years, versus those that are actually scored and funded pursuant to the, the pay line, and see if there's a difference. Now, the deputy director of NIH, who's in charge of extramural programs, actually did this. 
but on a smaller scale. He wanted to see those that are funded, did the score make a difference in terms of citation? Absolutely no difference. None. None. No. So we have a system in place that is too expensive to administer and has adverse consequences in terms of the types of science funding. So what you can do is do some random funding or you can adopt the NSF model, which is all of your people rotate every two years. There are the NSF no, model is what, National Science Foundation? National Science Foundation. Okay. They have their, their grants people, they rotate. They come from the university, spend two years at NSF, and then go back. So you have change of perspective right. every two years. Okay. And that shakes things up. All right. Well, we have to shake things up at NIH. There's no question about that. Going back to the, uh, the impact of the virus on the general population, mm -hmm. federal and state officials were really desperate to stop the spread of the virus and and uh, they 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 undertook a lot of uh, different measures what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions uh, the lockdowns and so on what did we learn Joel about the effectiveness of these public health measures these mitigation efforts during the pandemic um, which were very very costly in many ways uh, and what is the key lesson uh, for the future well, look, they were costly and they were unprecedented. Prior to the pandemic, there was no country and no public health organization that was proposing the types of extreme measures uh, falling under that rubric, lockdowns, that were actually imposed. And no one talked about imposing them for the, the severity and no one talked about imposing them for the length of time that they were imposed. So we undertook a study uh, at Paragon uh, with my colleagues Brian Blaze, Eric Sun, and with uh, Casey Mulligan from the University of Chicago, where we actually did an empirical study to see what was the result. And we relied on two important facts. We have a, an unconstitutional system of federalism. The states are responsible for public health measures. So you had 50 states and the District of Columbia all had different types of lockdown measures so we could compare them. We also took advantage of the fact that Oxford University School of Government had been compiling an index of lockdown or government-type response measures. They called it a government response tracker. Uh, so this was a third party unaffiliated with us that had a, an index that we could use. And luckily, they didn't just do countries around the world. They did all 50 states and the District of Columbia. So when we looked and compared the Oxford measures, we found with health outcomes as measured by uh, COVID mortality and excess mortality, and by the way, adjusted for different states' age distribution and different states' incidence of chronic disease, which most people, most of the people in this area do not do and, uh, and, and end up with erroneous results, we found that there was no significant correlation between the severity of the lockdown measures and the health outcomes. What we did find, though, that there was a strong negative correlation with economic outcomes as measured by increases in unemployment or decreases in states' GDP. And we also found there was a strong negative correlation with education as measured by days of in-person schooling, which is independently correlated with test scores and by CDC data uh, that correlates it with social isolation and emotional and psychological uh, detriment. So <clears throat> this is what we learned, that these, these were untried in the past. No one had planned to do this. They were primarily based on uh, historical misinterpretations of what had happened before, and importantly, based on the uh, inaccurate modeling, particularly the Imperial College of London, which uh, completely ignored the fact that people act voluntarily way before government gets involved to take mitigating measures. And any effect that we had was actually, and this is a very good review of this by the Canadian economist Douglas Allen, where he talks about how any effect you had was primarily due to voluntary measures that happened way before the government did. So you had, what we learned was you can't do this, and you have to th think upfront about balancing the benefits, the putative benefits of these measures against the economic, social, and educational costs. Right. It's, what's interesting is that Professor uh, Steve Hankey 
at Johns Hopkins University has just uh, completed a rather comprehensive evaluation of the impact of the lockdowns on mortality and basically came up with the uh, very, very rich empirical study indicating that, in fact, uh, the lockdowns did not have a significant impact uh, on mortality. In fact, what, mortality. They, they, we, what we found, and this is confirmed from Sweden, is that yeah. the lockdowns increased excess non-COVID mortality. And the interesting thing about Sweden, Sweden is very much like Florida. It's a state, well, Florida actually imposed lockdowns and then quickly withdrew them. Sweden right. actually never really imposed much right. in the way of lockdowns. Right. Kept its schools open, no masking, etc. No. And Sweden, health-wise, did about as well as the average European country. But Sweden did not see an increase in non-COVID mortality. And that's unlike any other country in the world. It's unlike most states. We saw big rises in cancer mortality, heart disease mortality, suicide, alcohol-associated deaths, all due to the, the, these lockdowns. Yeah, well, the Swedes uh, committed the crime of treating uh, their citizens like adults. And the consequence of that was impressive, actually. <laughs> uh, during, the, uh, during, this, um, during this crisis, uh, Americans uh, were struggling to get uh, basic care during the pandemic. And federal agencies, of course, had a role in recommendations and so on, um, including the lockdowns, of making recommendations uh, on trying to do that. Uh, the FDA, of course, has a role here. And uh, the question, I guess, uh, Brian, is since you've been following the FDA as a former medical officer of the FDA, how could the FDA change its policies to expand access to care next time around? So this is a really good question. And you know, during the pandemic, what happened is, well, doctors prioritized, obviously, understandably, taking care of the COVID patients that were overflowing in their emergency rooms. Right. right? Operating rooms were turned into intensive care units. So hospitals were overflowing. People were worried about ventilators running out. There's a shortage of yeah. PPE. So the FDA got products on the market earlier using its EUA authority. We need to help speed the diagnostics review process and allow that flexibility. But what about all the other healthcare that goes on, right? The treating of heart failure, diabetes, COPD, cancer treatment, cancer diagnosis, all the just um, what sounds like meat and potatoes for us public policy wonks, but when you're a patient, Right? If you have cancer, you have heart failure, or you have high blood pressure, diabetes, you still need access to basic care. Right? And there are payment levers that you know, have been pulled and continue to be pulled, allowing for telehealth. And then your answer is, well, what's the FDA have to do with any of this? The great thing about FDA regulatory policy, because it can actually democratize access to health care. Right? So there are lots of drugs Right? Like we have prescription drugs and we have over-the-counter drugs. Right? We can walk into the CVS and buy Tylenol, cough syrup, et cetera. And then the question is, are there drugs that maybe we shouldn't get over-the-counter, but you don't necessarily have the risk where you need a prescription, like have to go see a doctor, physically right. go to the doctor's office, right. call the doctor's office. Many other countries actually have a behind-the-counter drug class as a pharmaceutical product regulatory category meaning the drug you know, applies for marked entry or redesignation or switches, and it's available behind the counter. You don't need to go to the doctor to get a prescription. Pharmacist doesn't have to prescribe it, but you have to go talk with the pharmacist, and they serve as a so-called learned intermediary. That is a way to massively expand access to care for chronic diseases, right? Like a lot of chronic disease care went sort of unaddressed during the pandemic. Right. Right. Lots of people in everyday life still don't have great access to chronic disease care. Right. And then on top of it, drugs for acute illnesses, potentially, you could imagine, could fit into that category. Something like 95% of Americans have easy access to a pharmacist within a couple miles of their house. We have a huge physician shortage. So I think if Congress and the FDA work together to create that behind-the-counter drug pathway, that could massively expand access for treatment of routine chronic disease and also serve as an additional reservoir of treatment for uh, in the setting of another pandemic. Right. That's a pretty big change. And uh, it, it sounds it sounds like a it sounds like a big change. But you, the phrase you use 
is to democratize, basically, access to care. And that's, a, that's an attractive idea. I would hope that Congress would look into that. Bob, um, getting back to the NIH again, uh, going back once again to this whole question of how can we basically right. have this agency function more effectively in terms of its research agenda. You mentioned uh, certain things earlier um, based, you know, examples like using some of the, the, the patterns we've done used with the National Science Foundation. Um, but in, in terms of making the system more competitive, how, how would we do that? Making the, 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 the grant process more competitive. Well, the grant process is overly competitive. All right. That's part okay. of the problem. So I, I misunderstood. Uh, okay. In the sense that um, the pay line is is so low. In other words, relatively few. I think the pay rate is now, the grant rate is now about, depending on the institute, on average, under 20%. So one out of every five grant applications gets funded. And mm -hmm. most of the grant applications are what are called R01, which are basic research grants unsolicited that a typical faculty member at an academic medical center would submit. Um, so the real question is, do we want to increase the level of funding, or do we want to decrease the amount of time researchers have to spend preparing proposals, most of which aren't going to get funded, so it's a massive waste of research time. Uh, so we have a lot, of, a lot of choices. Now, we spend about $35 billion on extramural research, give or take a few billion, and another $10 billion on general administration on the intramural program. So the real question is, do you want to increase that budget? Do you want to keep it the same? This is, this is a policy decision that the Congress has to make, and it makes it annually. But if we're going to increase the budget, it would be wise perhaps to also change the mechanism by which funding right. is, is done. An 80-year-old system designed for one institute with relatively few grant applications is not the system we have today. Right. Right. And so I, th I think we have to modernize how NIH does business in that regard. Okay. But, you know, I think their investment in some of the technologies that we used was remarkably, was remarkable. Right. Uh, most people don't realize from the time that we received the sequence to the virus from You're China. You're talking about the genetic sequence. The right. genetic sequence, January 10th, to the time the vaccine was actually made was 13 days. My goodness. It was in someone's arm 63 days after the sequence was published, which is remarkable. Right. One of the things that the administration did yeah. right. Yes. Getting back to the FDA, uh, Brian was talking about how the FDA can basically help to democratize mm -hmm. care. Um, Here's here's the question though about the FDA and we're going to and Congress is going to be looking at all these agencies hopefully um, But Joel, I, I would ask you uh, looking at how this uh, how how the FDA performed uh, You've looked at this. Uh, do you think that the FDA is did the FDA do its job? Uh, or did it go beyond its job? Did it, did it exceed its mission uh, during the pandemic? Um, is there something that the FDA, FDA did that you would see the FDA do differently, potentially faced with a, another national medical emergency? Really two things. I mean, and as I said at the outset, I think the FDA deserves a lot of credit for pushing out the, the vaccine in such a rapid manner. But um, Brian talked about the EUA authority, um, which is a, a way of speeding approval of new devices, new drugs that are available. And the impact of that is that for the typical drug or device, that actually speeds things up. But there's another category of uh, device called laboratory developed tests, which the FDA has for over 30 years claimed it has authority to regulate. And these are tests that are developed in specific 
single laboratories, usually very academic laboratories, high what they're called high complexity CLIA laboratories, and they're used only in that single laboratory, usually for academic medical purposes. Uh, and they've claimed they have this authority, but they've never enforced it. They have what's called enforcement discretion. They mm. almost never enforce it. And they chose the moment where there was a public health emergency and the declaration that they were going to have EUAs going forward to say that these laboratory-developed tests would be subject to the EUA requirement. Now, for the typical thing, that speeds things. But for the LDTs, and you had a lot of academic and public health laboratories that had available tests in February 2020, it actually slowed things down. Uh, so, and, and, that, and I bring this up because the uh, FDA has just recently published a proposed regulation uh, a proposed rule that is going to try to finally establish for the first time through notice and comment rulemaking that they have the authority to, to regulate these things. And I think it's kind of a, a step backward and, and the, what happened during the pandemic illustrates why it, it was not very good. The second thing is really just that the FDA in many ways I think was overbearing in, in its attempt to control information. So. And there was a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals case about this after, uh, which dealt with the FDA's um, not just putting out information, but kind of hectoring people uh, and offering medical advice. Uh, and this had to do with ivermectin, but it happened to be in a lot of these uh, sort of controversial uh, medications that some people were promoting. Uh, and they weren't just, say, putting out, here are the studies, this is what we think. They were actually telling people, do not take this. Don't, right. you know, and they, well, they went beyond publishing information, uh, which is their role in getting involved in the labeling of drugs and approving it for safety and efficacy, to offering medical advice. And the Fifth Circuit said you can't do that. It specifically says that in the statute, that you're not allowed to do that. So I think we have to sort of keep that in mind that uh, the FDA is trying very hard to control information. Well, they damaged the doctor-patient relationship in that right. respect, and uh, you know, and frankly, um, the um, the scientific evidence was not conclusive uh, against a number of these therapeutics. Uh, At the outset, there were there were good reasons to think ivermectin might work. Correct. In laboratory studies, that had shown antiviral activity. There was some possibility right. that had anti-inflammatory effects. It was worth a try, and. This is something a patient had to discuss with their physician. Absolutely. But in, in their circumstances, et cetera, this is not something that the FDA should have been sending out information via the web and, and other social media sources. You are not a horse. Correct. Because they gave the, yeah. the, the misleading information that ivermectin was solely a livestock medication. In fact, it's approved for use in humans as well. Right. Um, on the question of the vaccines, all of you have taken the position that Operation Warp Speed, a unique public-private par partnership, was an enormous success, developing a vaccine in a matter of months rather than years. But over the past two years now, we've seen mounting evidence that there have been side effects uh, to uh, the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, in particular, cardiovascular issues that have arisen, and many Americans have concerns about side effects from vaccines, yet we don't still have kind of good comprehensive information, uh, you know, to, to answer this question. I guess the question is, uh, Brian, what should we do about this? So we have theirs, uh, which is not a great no, system. It's, not. it's a post-market event driven system, which requires people to actively put in a whole boatload of information. So one, that's a barrier, right? Because mm -hmm. if you have to fill out a uh, 50 form document online on a website that's slow and clunky, the likelihood of your reporting is much lower. Yeah. Uh, one, physicians are very, very busy, right? Because they have patients to see and Lord knows we have a lot of paperwork to deal with already. So that's an added barrier. The patient who experienced the adverse event, of course, might not be able to report because they experienced a very bad adverse event. They might not even know that there is that system to report information. So that's just not a realistic expectation to run a post-market surveillance program from that. We need to 
make this more automatic and allow patients to opt in to reporting. So for example, interoperability and data portability, if we had that and let patients choose to report, just tell their physician that they wanted to report this adverse event, and we had that technical system to do so, which we don't, because right now we don't have EHR interoperability. And most importantly, we also don't have medical device interoperability. So a lot of data that we get actually lives within devices. And if we had, like many other industries, standards development organizations that created identity communication standards, and we had working groups that allowed technology to work together, so say any blood pressure cuff was interchangeable sure. when you plugged it in, just like our iPhone works via Bluetooth with any car, with any car, and we can choose to have our iPhone connect to any car. That's our choice. If we created that sort of technical infrastructure, that would make data portability much easier. And then when patients have an adverse event that happens, it'd be much easier for them to choose to have that reported to the FDA rather than fill out a 50 form uh, document that they might not even be aware exists. Well, we certainly have to improve uh, the post-market surveillance of some of these drugs because the evidence is real. I mean, there are serious adverse consequences to some of these vaccines, which means that uh, the doctor-patient relationship is becoming more important than ever before with regard to who is the best candidate for the vaccine and who is not. And uh, certainly we have a lot of work to do on that. Uh, it's clear from uh, the the, uh, the views that have been expressed by members of the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic, that there is a real interest in trying to pursue this to make sure that some of what has happened in the past is not going to happen again. We have some questions uh, from the audience, I believe, uh, uh, are available, I guess. Uh, so let's uh, take some questions from our audience and uh, please uh, you know, address your, your question uh, to one of the panelists, uh, sir. Tom Davey, retired Navy Medical Service Corps and former, formerly at ASPR. Um, so retrospectively, this is going to be great research. Prospectively, in January of 2020, what would you have recommended for a novel virus with no protocols established? To whom is that directed? Anyone? Well, go ahead. Uh, Either my old professor from GW or... <laughs> <laughs> professor? The student is asking you a question. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure, sure when you say, what would you have recommended vis-a-vis -vis what? I remember early on, we were... Okay. On the lockdowns, a lot of, lot of concern, but we didn't know a lot of things. So we were highly risk adverse. Mm -hmm. And now we're learning several years later that maybe we went too far some places. And that's because we were risk adverse, not because we were evil people. And my question would have been, it, retrospectively, what might you have done prospectively if you had the opportunity? Well, I think prospectively, I, for example, would have tried to get modeling that was actually realistic, modeling that accounted for people's voluntary behaviors, modeling that didn't use unrealistic uh, RT values at the reproduction number. Uh, you had modeling that was predicting 2.2 million fatalities in the United States by July of 2020. So of course, this led to these crazy lockdown measures. Now, I understand your point, and I think it's a good one, that at the outset, no one knew exactly what we were dealing with. So it's, it's not absurd So saying we're going to have whatever it was, 15 days to lock down, 15 days, whatever, it was, whatever the phrase was, was not outlandish. But it actually became apparent relatively quickly by spring of 2020 which groups were the most vulnerable. And far and away, the most vulnerable people were the elderly, followed by people with chronic diseases. Uh, like diabetes, obesity, et cetera. Uh, those were the groups that needed to be protected. And there were a small group of us, myself and others, who were saying we should focus our efforts on those people, withdraw 
from these generalized measures. And you had states starting to do that, like, uh, like Florida, for example, by the late spring and summer of 2020 was drawing back. You had states, you had places like Sweden that never imposed these things. Uh, but we knew enough after the opening period of uncertainty to focus our efforts much more directly on the people who are vulnerable. And unfortunately, we did not do that. I'd say two things, actually. And I think it's hard operationally to say, I mean, we can have ideas, but it's hard for me to say, like, what is the specific operational step we should have done at the beginning of the pandemic? You know, I, I'm a hospitalist. I work in a hospital. The first thing that you do when there's a code and the patient arrests is you take your own pulse. And you do that, obviously, and resuscitate the patient. But the idea is, is that you need a level set. You need to think about your organization and your principles of how you're going to run that code. A public health emergency is the same thing. So I think there are two things that we should have done that we didn't do from a principle and organizational structure. The first is, for public health decision making, we didn't consider economic impacts. Economic, right? When the CDC made decisions, the CDC made decisions about risk. They didn't really think so much about benefit. And they definitely didn't have economics in their public health decision making. And economics has a real health impact. right? If you lose your livelihood because we have made a public policy decision to close those businesses and you do not have a job, right? That has significant health impacts. You can't pay your rent, can't pay your mortgage, can't put food on the table. Granted, there are programs to help support people with that, but there are frictions. And so thinking about the economic impacts and economic an economic lens for public health decision making is, I think, something we did not do. The other thing that we did not do, which is really important and still actually blows my mind that this happened. So like at the FDA, there's this whole apparatus. There's advisory committees. There's notice and comment rulemaking. There's guidance documents that have public workshops. Granted, you can do those virtually, as we have learned um, in the setting of a pandemic. So it's that, that FDA apparatus is not perfect by any stretch. You know, I wrote a colleague recently, or a column with my colleague Tony Mills in the National Review about the CDC's decision-making process. They do not have those mechanisms generally. I mean, they have in a few places. But they generally do not have mechanisms to regularly take public input from stakeholders, all stakeholders, including stakeholders that they don't like, which is fine. Like when you're working at an agency, right, you have people who can be annoying or be unpleasant. But part of your job is, is to address those concerns and engage everybody. The CDC, when it did its guidance during the pandemic, it did its guidance based upon you know, functionally who was in the director's phone book, which some play at times included the teachers union, the, you know, the parents group, the PTA was not there. And so I think making that normalized routine channels for public input and public health agency decision making, because the CDC is functionally a public health regulatory agency, would be a huge critical change that probably would have changed what the CDC's guidance was during the pandemic. Yeah, I, I would add to that, by the way, that the CDC should have, from the get-go, been out there sponsoring studies to learn more about the virus and then learn once a vaccine was available, who does it work in and the side effects. And they didn't do that. And they were relying on other people. Their, their, their data collection and dissemination system was so bad that a, the Johns Hopkins dashboard, which was set up by a single graduate student, became the de facto uh, you know, data source for the entire country. So they didn't do all of these things, nor did they share the uncertainty that you referred to. You know, no one knew at the beginning. You know, they, you can share that with the American public. You can say, look, this is what we think. We're not sure. We advise this sort, doing these sorts of things. But instead, they sort of, not just the CDC, but Anthony Fauci and others, spokespersons, were out there talking as if they knew one day it was masks don't work, then three weeks later is masks are great, two weeks after that, masks are for everyone. You know, so the, the, it was constantly changing as if we knew what was going on, and we didn't know what was going on, and that's not a crime no. at the outset. You have to be able, willing to share that with people, and, and if you undermine their confidence by not sharing that with people, they'll never listen to you again. Uh, yes, uh, gentleman in the back. 
Hi, um, thank you guys all for being here. Um, my name is Caleb King. I'm from the Heritage Foundation. And this is a, an appropriate follow-up question in regards to the CDC and also the transparency. Um, according to a recent Washington Post article that discusses the regaining of trust in CDC, Director Cohen was quoted saying, I worry with so much information, we are not going to break through with a couple of key talking points. And I'm just concerned that providing Americans with the minimum amount of information and then not enough transparency would only make the public more skeptical. And so I'd like to hear y'all's thoughts on this issue and how we can ensure that these agencies prioritize transparency over like an appeal to authority um, that was mentioned with you know, Linsky and also with Dr. Fauci in regards to using their authority to kind of convince the public to get vaccinated or to practice a specific you know, measure. Who's that directed to? Directed to Dr. Miller and Dr. Um, yeah, actually, Dr. Miller, if you would. Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, I think we need to obviously support uh, transparency, but I think we also need to give people like the populace more credit. People are actually pretty smart and resilient. And so to assume that they can only handle a couple bullet points of information is uh, frankly paternalistic and not in a good way. Like agency. Uh, transparency about information about risk, right? Say like, this is what I know about masks right now. You know, my recommendation might change, and here's why. But here's what we should do now. That's sort of the basics of crisis communication. So I, I did a. In addition to being an internist, I'm also a board certified public health physician. I did an MPH at Hopkins, and one of our required courses was actually public health crisis communications. Uh, and I would say that entire playbook, which includes transparency, communication about uncertainty, uh, conveying you know multiple, not just one fact, but conveying a scope of knowledge, that whole playbook was thrown out during the pandemic. Right. <clears throat> when you don't know something, you should say that you don't exactly. know Exactly. I mean, there are lots of the, things. The, one of the know. biggest problems we had was this mixed messaging that was very, very public, particularly with regard to masks, uh, masking, where Anthony Fauci told uh, a former HHS secretary going to an airport that under no circumstances should she wear a mask. It was a waste of time. And then, you know, in a, in a matter of, of, you know, weeks, you have a, a situation where you have a complete reversal of the federal government's position, and the public naturally uh, is become skeptical, you know, when that sort of thing takes place. But it was common. Uh, yes, sir. We talked about a lot of the adverse effects of the pandemic in response to it, the lockdowns, the school closures, et cetera. But I think one thing we haven't talked about is, I think one of the more damaging parts of the pandemic is the the regime of censorship that was ushered in uh, with with suppressions of free speech, especially on social media. Um, you know, the, the Missouri v. Biden case in the Fifth Circuit shows, you know, the federal government, public health agencies, censoring Americans under the, the guise of misinformation. So I want to ask Bob, my old boss, his views on, on what, what, you know, he thinks the health agency's role should be uh, in policing misinformation uh, in our free and open society. Yeah. Counselor? They should not have a role in policing misinformation. Um, that's not their job. It's not the FDA's job. It's not the CDC's job. It's not the NIH's job. They are not the science police. One is a regulatory agency, the other two are not. CDC, in most instances, is not a regulatory agency. NIH is not a regulatory agency. FDA is the only regulatory agency, and it's Jurisdiction is cabined by statute dramatically. Indeed, we could have done quite well with respect to testing uh, if we had realized early on that FDA has no bloody jurisdiction over state universities and over state laboratories because a state is not a person under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and FDA only has jurisdiction over persons. So. I was going to say, um, I have a thought on that. And I think that part of what happened is, is people became uncomfortable with dissension and disagreement. And disagreement and dissension is a critical part of science and medicine. 
Like we have, you know, I, I see patients and sometimes patients don't believe what I say. And that's okay, right? You have a debate. And it's our job to convince people. It's not our job to say that we are the authority or we are the science, therefore you must do what we say. So I think that the, I, I was very concerned about the policing and the censorship that occurred. I mean, the answer to speech you don't like is more speech, right? right? That's the principle of our country. And as you're probably aware, the Supreme Court has granted certiorari on a case dealing with just those issues, uh, Missouri v. Biden, where the, uh, the allegation by the plaintiffs, which includes Jay Bhattacharya and uh, Dr. Kaldorf, who the two of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, right. Right. is that they were being censored by government officials, that there was pressure being placed on social media to limit the exposure of the Great Barrington Declaration and to limit their uh, other exposures. Uh, it's not confined to uh, medical things, but it's lar a large part of the complaint that deals with medical issues. So the Supreme Court's going to hear that issue. Yeah, we have one more question over, over there. Uh Oh, hi, I'm Brianna Cespedes. I'm actually from Los Angeles, and as you all know, we're one of the last cities to actually get off that emergency status. Um, I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Miller, you said that the EUA authority was actually a success when it came out with the vaccine. And I'm just wondering, for that, that emergency authorization, because the timeline was so much less for actually the testing of this new product, how how is that actually adjust a mass mandate in order for them to, to send it out uh, under that emergency. So if I understand it, your question correctly, you're saying should the, should the mass mandates have been adjusted because the vaccine came out earlier? I'm trying, I'm trying to say just is it just for that emergency authorization for, for the amount of mass mandate that they actually did? Uh, was it just for them to keep with the emergency authorization because the product is much less tested? I think that the, the use of mass mandates and non-pharmaceutical interventions was actually less related to the vaccine and the evidentiary burden behind the vaccine. I think it was, frankly, an over-exercise of the precautionary principle later in the pandemic because our society and our culture changed, right? We, you know, previously, uh, drive cars, fly airplanes, ride bicycles, whatever it is. I mean, most of our activities that we do in daily life are actually highly risky. And during the pandemic, because of years of consistent messaging about fear and risk aversion, which arguably was highly appropriate very early in the pandemic when we didn't have vaccines and we didn't have therapeutics, later in the pandemic, when we had vaccines and therapeutics widely available, that risk messaging did not change. And our society had changed towards a zero risk tolerance. And so I think that's where the continuation of the mass mandates came. I don't think it was from the EUA use and the early access to vaccines in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. I think that the, you're saying were mass mandates used in people who are already vaccinated because of the EUA? No, I'm trying to just t talk about the product itself, whether it's a good thing for the emergency authorization because the product wasn't tested for the time normally that would be prescribed for a vaccine. I mean, I, I think that, that it wasn't necessarily the time in testing. It's whether it meets the evidentiary burden for marketing authorization. And they had trials that were reasonably robust in terms of showing efficacy, especially with the original two-shot series. Right. Uh, we have time for just one more question. Um, no? We have no more questions, is that right? Oh, wait a minute, one, oh, okay. Back, okay, back there, I think, okay. <laughs> right, the gentleman had his hand up first. I just wanted to quickly ask about, you know, in the early 2000s, or uh, I think it was 2006, we did, uh, Congress did some NIH reform and tried to, you know, remove some of the d disease specific um, programs, which had really kind of bogged down the agency and turned it into something where, you know, individual members were just pushing, you know, their preferred uh, research into diseases of interest. Is there any template with that when we look at, you know, the growth of CDC, you know, focusing on all these chronic diseases and not communicable disease? Um, what can we learn? And, and this, I'm going to direct this question um, at Dr. Zinberg. Uh, you're asking about CDC, 
asking about yeah, what we you can said learn. NIH at the outset. Yeah, I'm asking about what we can learn. Yeah, from no, I think it's a very important, you know, very important conclusion of our study was that this is something Congress needs to take up uh, because you cannot rely on the CDC to reform itself. And it, it, you know, this, and the the fact that Congress has never authorized the agency has never provided guidelines for it, never provided guideposts and, and, and set out the core mission and doesn't do the type of congressional oversight that we really need. So uh, we know that the CDC can't reform itself. None, no agency in Washington does. And we have this uh, example from 20 years ago that CDC tried and failed because its staff rebelled and left on mass, so we know this is something that Congress has got to do. It's got to do the hard work of sitting down, going center by center in the CDC, and deciding which things belong there, which things don't belong there, and and you know belong at other places like NIH, uh, etc., uh, and and end up with an organization that really has been authorized and has clear guidance and oversight going forward. Ladies and gentlemen. All good things come to an end. And I want to thank our panelists. Please give our panelists a hand. Um, recognize that today's session really only scratches the surface of an enormous issue. Uh, the Heritage Foundation is uh, assembling a commission which will look into the origins of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, chaired by John Ratcliffe, former director of the Office of National Intelligence, along with a great group of uh, colleagues, including Bob Redfield, former CDC director, and Bob Cadlick. Uh, it will hopefully this commission will produce uh, next, uh, probably early next year, we'll have uh, a, a, an interim report any, in any event. Um, Congress is doing a great job in terms of the uh, oversight work. Uh, the House Select Committee on the subcommittee, House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic, has had uh, some tremendous uh, hearings uh, going into this in great detail. We are probably going to see many more. Uh, this, as I said, is only uh, scratching the surface. Once again, I want to thank our panelists. Uh, it's been a great session. Once again, uh, thank you all for joining us at the Heritage Foundation.